Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is uh, May 21st, 2013, and this is episode 1134 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, sorry about no show yesterday, just have tons of stuff going on here, getting ready for the uh, the workshop we're going to be doing uh, on uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, actually Sunday as well. Uh, but the workshop's actually Friday and Saturday, but I have people coming in on Thursday to claim their camp out spot if they're camping out or get a guest room if they got a guest room and just hang out and have a meet and greet. And we have kind of a breakfast scheduled for Sunday and a just discussion about the event and what, what we could have done better and any questions that weren't answered during the, the classes. So with all that going on, uh, yesterday I sat down to do a show and it just got to a point where I realized it was going to take as long as Monday shows usually take and decided that, I would have to preempt it to get some things done, and I did get those things done. Um, I want to go ahead and take care of our sponsors, but I, I want to talk a little bit first about more Oklahoma. Um, I've had several requests saying, is the disaster response team going to more Oklahoma? There's not yet a disaster response team um, because doing this in a way that would enable us to go to a place like more Oklahoma right now in an organized, helpful way and not be told, go away, we don't need your help, uh, and have trained people that are all listed as, as our volunteers and be able to take uh, financial donations and things like that. Um, we're just not there yet. We just had to spend uh, about a thousand bucks just to get the IRS filing so that we could be recognized as a nonprofit and we have our structure in place and, and all of that. Websites being created, etc. So I'm just going to say right now that's just not ready to go yet. Um, I do want to do something. And I'm looking for you guys to help me with that. I have a very hard time recommending that anybody donate to the Red Cross. After what I saw with Hurricane Sandy, after I saw with the Haitian earthquake, and that's why we put together the concept of the disaster response team in the first place, which again now is called Citizens Assisting Citizens. It sounded more of a friendly, um, mainstream terminology. Uh, for uh, marketing purposes out in front of the organization. When I, uh, when I came in yesterday, I, uh, I looked at the screen and there was a guy covered in mud with no shirt on that had just come out of a debris field. And I just got a text alert that said we had some severe weather moving into Texas from the southeast. And I thought maybe that was Texas and you know, those storms were heading our way. And I had a sinking pit feeling in my stomach. And right now we have a storm system coming together that could cause major damage in the areas that already got it yesterday. Could cause major damage right here uh, in our backyard. And the further east you go in Texas, further east and north you go in Texas, the worse the potential gets. We have a, a Torcon index rating here, somewhere between three and five, uh, something like that, depending on you know, where exactly do they draw the line in the regions. And uh, northeast Texas, as you get up toward the you know Texarkana area, east Texas area, uh, has a Torcon rating of a six. Uh, that's the same rating that uh, that area of Moore, Oklahoma, had yesterday. Um, so we have a situation brewing where we're looking at a high probability of uh, tornadic storms in Texas that may be as bad as what happened yesterday. 
And the reason I say that is because I want people to kind of get in touch with the fact that this could be any of us anywhere right now. Um, if you live in a place where they don't have tornadoes, there's probably something that happens in your area, whether it's forest fires or landslides or earthquakes um, that can be equally or, or even more devastating over larger, broader areas, uh, hurricanes as well. And uh, it was that feeling of, man, are we, in, are we in the line of this thing that makes me today have even greater empathy for the folks that are uh, experiencing a loss that I can only imagine up and more. And I wish we were ready to roll. I really do. And uh, at the same time, I have some feelings that I feel almost selfish about. I mean, I'm, I'm here going, gee, I hope that, you know, I hope we don't get hit with something like that. But I'm also thinking I hope we don't get hit with something that's bad enough just to do damage and screw up the event we've, we've put together and, and mess up the plans of 20 people who have, you know, decided they wanted to come here and experience this. Um, and I think that's human nature. And my thought is if we can just get through today, if we can just get through today without having everything destroyed or even just really messed up, we have clear sailing after this for about a week as far as the weather guessers say. And uh, I'm going to be honest about the fact that I feel that way because I think that puts us in touch with the human element of, you know, I hate to see it happen to anybody else, but I almost hate for it worse that it, that it happens to me or to my neighbors and again, I think that's human nature. And I think that when you start to think that way, it's, it, it sounds selfish on the surface, but I think it makes you more willing to do something to help the people that it did happen to because of the gratefulness that it didn't happen to you. So I'd like from the audience to know who is on the ground or soon will be on the ground and more that we can trust, that we can contribute to financially until we're ready to do this physically ourselves. And uh, I'd like it to be somebody that's a little bit more regional-based or a little bit more personal-based than something like the American Red Cross. Because, again, I've, I've pretty much lost faith in their ability to be good stewards and good shepherds of the money that people donate. Um, their general fund crap game is, again, a big part of why I wanted to put together Citizens Assisting Citizens. Not the only reason, but a big part of it. But I'm sure there's someone there that can use the help right now and make sure that it gets put to use on the street as soon as possible. So I'd like your help. And uh, I'd also like you guys to think about uh, the North Texas, Southwestern Arkansas, especially the East Texas, Southern Oklahoma regions today. Because we have a storm that could, for all intents and purposes, crap out and spin out a few small F1s, F2s and not really be that big a deal. Or we have a storm that if things come together right, and unfortunately it looks like there's a great potential for that, could make today as bad a day as yesterday just for different people in a different area. And try to remember always that there's some things we can only do so much to prepare for. Um, I'm prepared for a lot of things. I'm not really prepared for a direct hit of a tornado on my house. I don't think you can be. Uh, with that, on less sad things, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors today. Uh, sponsor of the day number one today is ready-made resources. There's a lot, not a lot more that you can ask for from a company than for them to say, you know, this is, this is our name of our company. We're ready-made resources and their name of their company is what they do. And that's what ready-made does. They provide all the resources you need ready-made, ready to go point, click and buy on their website, readymaderesources.com. And I'll tell you what, they do have everything for your prepping long-term uh, food for long-term storage food. Check. Okay, stuff if you want to take your own food and convert it to long-term storage food like dehydration and canning, check. Gardening stuff, check. Tactical stuff, check. Practical stuff, check. 
Um, 12-volt appliances, check. Solar and wind products, check, check. I mean, everything. If you can think of it, you'll find it at readymaderesources.com. Next up today, bulkammo.com. You know, there's the triangle. I keep talking about it, but it's so important that we understand it because if we leave any of the, the, the three uh, angles of the triangle out, we are incomplete as a responsible gun owner. There's the gun itself. If you have no gun, you can have all the gun training in the world, you can have all the ammunition in the world, and all you can do is throw bullets at people, and it doesn't work real well. You can try it if you want to, but I don't really want to do it. You can have a great gun, you can have great training, you have no ammunition, what you have is a really expensive club. It's when you take the training, the weapon, and the ammunition, and you put them together, that you have a gun owner capable of defending himself, defending his home, and defending, his, if it comes down to it, his, his county, his state, or his nation. And God knows where we'll ever need to be able to do that, but it can happen. And that means that we should be, I'm going to talk today about stocking up on silver. Stock up on the other precious metal, copper, jacketed, lead. And one of the best places I know to do that is uh, bulkammo.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. And you get discounts to so many things that your membership will probably pay for itself. With that, I want to go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show, Understanding Investing in Silver. I'm going to promise you right up front, this will not be a TSPMint.com infomercial. Uh, in fact, I'm going to talk about it very little today, only when I talk about one particular type of silver will I even you know, mention it other than right now. Um, I am getting a lot of questions and a lot of uh, concerns with buying silver in the market and not from the whole Chris Dwayne melodrama that's really kind of ran its course at this point and fizzled out into the nothingness oblivion that it deserves to be in. I mean, questions and concerns that, I mean, just shouldn't even exist. I'm trying to buy pre-64 coins, and uh, I don't know who to trust. You don't need to worry about who to trust. I mean, if you're going to go buy 1960 and earlier silver dimes, it doesn't matter. Well, I don't know if I'm at a good price. Well, look at four or five places selling. and see. So it, it, that's the kind of question I'm getting. I'm also getting the questions of, you know, how do I know that you know I'll be able to sell my silver when I want to sell my silver? Or how do I know that people will understand that my silver is real silver and questions like that? And what do I do with my silver? Where do I put it? And so I want to do a question today explaining a, a lot of this. I also want to do a, talk about why I recommend a small portion of your wealth into silver and gold at, at five to ten percent. And I'll, I'm okay with people that want to push it up to twenty, but I don't really advise it. And uh, I want to talk about how variety plays a role here and why it makes sense to do that. And I also want to just talk about the fact that when it comes down to it, any piece of silver always has a commodity price, and there's always many places you can take it and exchange it for cash if that's what you want to do. And I also want to talk about the fact that even in good times, that may not be the smartest way to divest yourself of silver, that trade and barter with silver is often a better option. And I have a lot of other things to cover with that. So... Um, that's kind of the agenda that I have for today. And uh, But what I want to start out with is why I focus on silver over gold. We have some gold, um, not a ton of it. I wish I did have a ton of gold, honestly. But what I mean is not a lot of it in comparison to how much silver we have. And there's been a fundamental reality that I've watched with gold and silver for a long time now. There's what I call the delta, and the delta is... How much is an ounce of silver versus how much is an ounce of gold? And the historical delta uh, is generally been somewhere in the neighborhood of 16 to 1, 20 to 1, somewhere in that. 
And it's only in modern times that we've had these, these much bigger deltas between silver and gold. For instance, right now, for every ounce of gold that you could buy, you could buy about 62 ounces of silver. And that's, that's been that way for a long time. It's been that way ever since we, uh, frankly, the, the way that's worked out is it's been that way just about ever since we decoupled metal from the U.S. dollar. Um, and it was done, that was done in stages. Everybody thinks about FDR and, and the gold buy and the gold confiscation and everything. And we're going to talk about the non-event of confiscation uh, in our future uh, today as well. But I, I want you guys to understand how the dollar actually decoupled. There was actually, to me, four major stages of the decoupling. Actually, I'm going to say there were five major stages of the decoupling uh, from the dollar from gold and silver. And gold in particular. The first one was actually, and it didn't happen at all initially, but was the creation of the Federal Reserve. When control of the monetary system was placed in the hands of the banks, you don't really know that there was gold behind the currency to the level that it was promised at. What you knew was that the gold was immediately, or the, the paper was immediately exchangeable for gold. That doesn't really mean that just because they said so that every dollar had a piece of gold behind it. In other words, If every person holding a paper bill in 1914 had went down to, to banks and depositories, etc., and said, we'd all like our gold, please, there's no guarantee there was enough gold to cover it. So as soon as we put the, the, the money into the hands of a private banking system, there was a potential for those folks to manipulate the quantity of currency independent of the quantity of gold held by the nation as a whole because they were creating the money And they were holding some gold, but the rest of the gold was being held by the country. Then, in the 1930s, in the middle of the Great Depression, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, decided, hey, this gold thing is a problem. What we'll do is we'll buy the gold for, for face value, and then we'll change and float the currency apart. So they bought the gold. They didn't confiscate. They didn't steal. They didn't raid anybody's house. They said, turn in your gold, and we'll pay you for it. And they bought the gold which was trading at $20 an ounce, or $20 a coin anyway, which was a little under an ounce actually, and said, here's your, here's your $20 in you know, U.S. government script. Federal Reserve knows. And they took the gold and they used it to finance the war effort. They used it to pay national debt. They used it to put away in holes in the ground. They did all kinds of things with it. But they rebased the currency with a partial gold backing. You could still exchange your currency for gold if you weren't a citizen. Right? If you were in another nation, the U.S. at that point still said, yeah, you can have gold for your dollars. But still in circulation was silver. And silver was every dime, every quarter, every 50-cent piece, every silver dollar was silver. And this kept some check on things with the U.S. monetary supply, especially in the time frame we're talking in. I mean, what's the big deal about a dollar today? And the answer is not much. What's the big deal about two quarters today? The answer is not much. In 1940, if you had 50 cents, you could probably buy with what you would buy today for eight to ten bucks, right? So kind of think about a quarter being equivalent in the 1940s and 1950s and 1930s, a quarter being equivalent to almost a $5 bill. And in some cases, yes, about a $5 bill in value. So there was a tremendous amount of money changing hands based on silver all the way up until the Coin Act in 1964. When they took the coins, and 64 was the last year they were minted in 90% silver, and flipped them over, 
and made them into basically Chuck E. Cheese tokens. Really nicely made, well, high quality Chuck E. Cheese tokens that were backed the same way the paper was backed by the government's good faith and credit. And again, you could exchange for an equivalent amount of gold if you were a foreign bank, if you were another nation, what have you. It was only citizens of the country itself that weren't able to own and exchange gold. And silver was still legal for possession. And people began to immediately cull it from circulation. In the 1970s, when I was a kid, If you went through a big handful of pocket change, you'd probably find three or four silver coins in there. Um, by the 1980s, not so much. By the 1990s, forget about it. Today, when you find one, you're like, wow, I can't believe I found one. And you do from time to time, but it's, it's unusual. It's usually some kid has raided their parents' stash and dumped the money into circulation, and it doesn't take long for it to come back out. So then that was the next decoupling. And then there's two more, and most people only think of one. In 1971, Richard Nixon closed the gold window. It was largely because our country was literally being economically attacked by Charles de Gaulle in France, who was basically exchanging every dollar that he could get, every U.S. dollar he could get for gold, as fast as he could. Repatriating the money back to us, there was a lot of money circulating in Europe at the, t circulating in Europe at the time. France was plenty happy to take dollars, but immediately was dumping them into our economy. And we had all kinds of crap, and then basically the U.S. just defaulted. And we defaulted by closing the gold window, but it was literally a default. We defaulted on our guarantee to pay the bearer in gold. Even though the citizen was not paid in gold, the other nations were. So that was the fourth decoupling. And then people think that was the end of the story. Well, it really wasn't. Because if you look at the price of gold from 1971 and 1975, it doesn't change much. Because nobody was buying gold with dollars. When people were buying gold, they were buying it with francs or Australian dollars or something like that because U.S. citizens couldn't own gold. Remember, they'd made it illegal for you to buy gold except for certain collector pieces and things like that. So what happened in 1975? That restriction was removed, and that was the final decoupling. And if you look at the price of gold in 1975 through 1985, you see the results of the decoupling. You see a run-up. A ramp down and then a leveling out and then a continuous increase showing the inflation curve. And silver mirrors it very, very carefully. But until, or very, very closely, not carefully. It's just like, well, I gotta be careful. No, no, okay. But mirrors it, but the delta's there. The delta that didn't exist before all this shit happened is there. And that's why one of the main reasons I prefer silver because that delta either says silver is unfairly valued and has more room to go up than gold, or gold's overvalued and silver has less risk on the downside. That said, both metals are coming down right now, and I think may continue to come down for, for a little bit more. I don't know how much resistance there is at the bottom, but I'll talk about why the price is coming down in a bit. Um, the next thing I, I really love about silver over gold is gold is treasured. You get a piece of gold, you don't ever, it, once a piece of gold comes out of the ground and gets refined, it's going to be gold forever, and it's never going to be made into something else other than maybe a piece of jewelry, which is still gold. Silver gets used for lots of industrial uses, including many that make it almost completely unrecoverable. Um, your, your iPad has silver in it. And it's such a small amount, and the work that would go into removing it after your iPad has met its doom is generally not considered worth it on an industrial level. Maybe somebody will pick through it and pick it out with an ice pick or something. I don't know. But generally speaking, it's not 
easily recoverable and it's financially um, it, it's easier at this point to get more out of the ground than to get it back out of a bunch of you know washed up iPads and other electronic devices. It's used in many different medical applications and other industrial applications. And what that means is that a lot of the silver that comes out of the ground goes away. So gold comes out of the ground and stays. Silver comes out of the ground and some of it disappears. Hey, that's that's a significant thing that keeps the underlying quantity of silver somewhat restrained compared to gold. Not that there's more silver or more gold than silver, but the quantity of silver can only expand. Available silver can only expand at a rate, and gold can actually expand at a faster rate per ounce, almost like a per capita rating. The next is silver is, always has been, probably always will be the common man's currency. It's worth enough that you can carry a small amount of it and do business, but it's not worth so much that it's too hard to divide down to a level where you can afford to do business. Even if you're doing business in gold, if you go to a true metal-backed economy, everything's gold and silver, you need silver to make change. Generally, we need actually even need a third metal, and it's traditionally been copper, and in other civilizations, bronze, to fractionalize silver beyond its, its, its relevant fractional levels. Um, and depending on how high a value of silver goes, the more need to fractionalize down with a third metal, a trimetallic standard. And copper is the one that I believe has the most intrinsic value and worth. It's not a precious metal. It's an industrial metal, but it has value as an industrial metal. And I did an interesting experiment one time where I went back and figured out, well, how many copper pennies did it take to make a silver dollar, right? Back in the day when they had used the large copper cents, and a hundred of those in today's value in copper was worth uh, almost as much as an ounce of silver. Uh, not not quite as much, but it, it it got a lot closer than maybe you would have expected. Um, it was kind of interesting to look at it that way. But silver is a common man's currency, and it's more widely available than gold. You can probably find silver just about anywhere. You can find gold too, but You know, the guy's got it all back in the vaults and, you know, brings out one little tenth ounce coin and you're out several hundred dollars. But silver generally, if you go to a coin show, there's tons of old silver coins, what they call junk silver around. There's tons of bars. There's tons of places to buy it from. It's just more widely available. And right for now, anyway, it incurs less oversight. And it incurs less oversight because it can be bought in small quantities easily. And what I mean by that is, let's say I had... Um, $1,000 to invest in silver. And I just didn't want any transaction over 500 bucks. Oh, okay. A, B, C, D, you know, and E. So five people, I split up my business amongst them and done. And I've got quite a good quantity of silver. I can do that in day easily. I can drive around to pawn shops and buy old coins that way. You know, junk silver or generic rounds or silver eagles or anything that way. And I don't really kind of, I'm not really on the board, so to speak, at any significant level, where, you know, buy an ounce of gold and you're into a, a transaction over a thousand bucks, and it, it incurs a little bit more visibility into what you're doing. I'm not talking about being real nefarious here or anything. I'm just saying that it's really easy to buy five or six ounces of silver here, five or six ounces of silver there, four or five ounces of silver here, do that every month and accumulate it over time, it's a little bit more complicated from a financial standpoint and a visibility standpoint than gold. So all of those reasons together, any single one of them is not that big a deal. 
You know, I'm not going to buy silver just because of the delta. I'm not going to buy silver just because it has industrial uses. I'm not going to buy it. But when I look at the totality and say, well, what's really available that's an anonymous currency that I can trade with just about anybody with a brain who will take it in lieu of cash in many instances, um, is recognized around the world, is historically used as a currency, I come up with silver and gold. Now when I'm making a choice between them, all of those things lead me to silver. Um, now I want to go through kind of the types of silver, what's out there, what makes each type unique, and advantages and disadvantages of each. So, I mean, I get the question all the time, what should I buy, what type of silver, is this better than that? And my response has been, almost since the very beginning of this show, five years now, we'll have our fifth year anniversary in, in about one month exactly. I think June 20th was the first show, so right at 30 days from now, we'll have the fifth anniversary of TSP. Buy what you like, buy what you want. You really can't mess it up. Each individual type of silver has its own little mini market within the macro market. So it's a, it's a micro market within the macro. What I mean is there's a spot price that's specific not to silver but silver eagles. You can go look and see how they're trading, and they're trading at a certain premium over spot, and it's pretty consistent. Um, or Canadian maple leaves or pre-65 silver coins. I mean – All of this stuff has a, a basis price and, and a premium. And it trades generally. You pay more for it, and you get less than that number when you sell it. And that's how it works, and that's how dealers make money. And sometimes people don't understand that. Well, I found out that if I buy five Silver Eagles today, but I turn around and try to sell them tomorrow, that I'm going to lose money. Uh-huh. How do you think the people working on a, a razor-thin margin of 3%, 4%, Um, are able to make a profit in an industry where when they hold inventory and it goes down, they're losing money. They hold inventory for a day and they can lose money. It's because they do enough volume over time that it averages out and they've got the formulas down now to a point where it's relatively safe to be a dealer and dealers try to do as much turnover as they can. They try to buy as low as they can and they try to sell as high as they can. It's the free market. That's just how it works. And the reality is if you have silver in just about any form and you go down to a few different shops, they'll give you a price for it. They'll give you a price for it that fast if they're a company that buys silver and gold. How do I know if I'm getting a fair price? Get two or three prices. Call them. Don't waste your time driving around. Call up and go, hey, if I had uh, 100 ounces of silver right now, what are you paying for it? And they might ask you what type it is and all, but they're going to give you a bottom line no matter what. As long as it's 100 ounces of actual silver, we're going to give you X. You know, if it's if it's you know face value and pre 64 coin, we're gonna do Y um, or what have you, and then just you know whoever's given the best price that day. But you know what? They're probably all gonna be really close to the same, unless you're going to Tom's Car Wash that also has a sign in the window that says we buy silver and gold. If you go to any legitimate dealer, they're gonna be very close to each other with the market. We, the, 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 <sighs> It drives me crazy because the person's worried about 20 cents an ounce selling, you know, 100 ounces of silver. Well, hey, can you do that math? Can you figure out what you're really worried about either on the buy or the sell side on 20 cents an ounce on 100 ounces of silver? You're worried about 20 bucks. You're worried about 20 bucks. And you're worried about 20 bucks on about a $2,200 transaction. It's, 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 it doesn't make sense. The, the time spent worrying about that 20 bucks could cost you 20 bucks. Uh, the time spent running to 15 different shops before you go ahead and sell your silver, if you just want to sell for cash, might cost you more than 20 bucks in gas. 
There's, there's, there's a market for this, and that's why I say buy what you like, and as long as it's not counterfeit silver, don't worry about it. You're probably going to pay a premium in line with the premium that exists to sell the item. Okay, So let me go through them and, and talk about what makes sense and what each item is and what makes it what it is. Start out with generic bars and rounds. These are things that are generally just, you look at it and go, okay, that's silver, that's nice, but there's no... There's no wow factor. There's no collector value. It's a generic piece. You know, it just says one ounce fine silver and it's got a, you know, a, a, a prospector on it or it just says, you know, one ounce AG or it's just a, a generic round from someplace like Atmex. Uh, it would fall under these or Sunshine Mint or something like that. They make them in unlimited quantities. It's their go-to generic piece of silver. They make them, they make them, they make them. They keep making them. Maybe one day they'll change the design a little bit, but nobody really cares. Nobody looks at it and goes, wow, that's a really cool piece. I'd like to have that in my collection. It's just a generic piece of silver of known weight and purity. Specifically, I'm talking now about small pieces, one ounce, and fractionals like quarter ounce, half ounce, tenth ounce pieces. The advantage of those is generally they're bought at a very small premium, and they are recognizable. And if you know who you're getting it from, then you know you're getting good quality, real silver and, and I, want to, I just want to tell you right now on counterfeit issues. Unless you're buying 100 ounce bars and, or you're not very smart, you don't have to worry about it. Counterfeit coins are easy to detect. I'm telling you, it, there is very little that you can do other than just take two pieces of known silver and, and let them kind of hit each other. I'm doing it right now in front of the mic. And once you know that sound, it's about the only metal in the world that makes that sound that way. Um, if you go to sell your silver, just about any pawn shop in America, there's there's two or three dudes behind the counter that can tell you whether a silver's real or not. It's and that's what makes it a good metal for investment. It's very easy to detect attempts to counterfeit silver. It really, really is. So as long as you know that you you're buying from a reputable company, and when you're buying ounces and fractionals, it's almost cost prohibited, prohibitive to to Counterfeit those. You, you, you got to sell so much volume, and you still have to do it through the process of making them. There's only so much value in a one ounce coin from a silver standpoint. You almost can't afford to do it. And weighing them and metering, miking them with a with a micrometer, a micrometer is another way you can do it. But generally, it's not hard to do. So the advantage then is that you have silver at a low premium that you can go sell, and you don't really have any emotional attachment to it. That's actually an advantage, too. You don't go, I don't really want to sell this one. I like this one. It's like, I can get another one of those any day. So that's kind of the, the you know, a good portion of your, of your portfolio can be in that because it's immediately exchangeable with no attachment to it whatsoever. It doesn't really have any kind of a tax advantage or anything, and it may not be the best thing for day-to-day -day barter uh, if we're in a, 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 you know, economic implosion, but it'll probably barter just fine. Uh, with somebody, and if you know, if, if your person you're bartering with, and it's a large transaction, say you're buying a used car, and you're going to do $2,500 in silver for it, and they have any concerns, go down to the pawn shop and give the guy behind the counter 20 bucks for an appraisal, and let him do it. You know, and if the guy wants cash, he can he can sell it after you've made the exchange. I mean, it's it's real simple, guys. You don't overthink this stuff. So that's the generic rounds and bars, custom medallions and pieces. Um, This is what I sell at TSP Mint. Things like the Sentinel, the Ant, etc. 
this is the best way to think of a custom medallion or a custom silver piece. Like, there's actually silver bullets out there right now. I mean, like 45 ACP full-size replica silver marked like that, okay? They're kind of cool, actually. So when you look at a collectible piece, it has a certain eye appeal. It has a certain limited edition or limited quantity. You can't just get more all the time. Usually they eventually are, you know, stop being produced and some new design comes out. And in the end, though, their intrinsic value is an ounce of silver or a half ounce of silver or a tenth ounce of silver until it comes to barter. And what I would tell you is, those of you that have some of the silver, uh, the, the silver sentinels, you know, talk to a buddy and, and agree to do something for an ounce of silver. Say, you know, I'll, I'll give you an ounce of silver for that. And lay down in front of them a generic piece and a sentinel and say, which one do you want? See which one he picks. There is a certain aesthetic value in coins that are beautiful. There's a reason that certain coins, even coins from U.S. currency, are more valued by collectors than others because of a beauty or a limited uh, quantity and what have you. So the advantage of a custom medallion or piece, especially in small-scale barter, is sometimes they'll, they'll have a bit of a premium on them. They usually sell for a bit of a premium. They probably won't sell at a pawn shop for a premium. I'll be completely honest with you about that. But... If you can get them for the same price as a generic item or within 10, 20 cents an ounce of a generic item, then doesn't it make sense to buy something that looks better, has a little bit more appeal, and doesn't cost much more? That's the value there. Now, collectible silver, numismatic value, affinity, etc., like the limited edition Sentinel proofs we did with the ant. Those are subject very much to personal value. Someday you may take the proof sentinel that you bought for an appraisal. It might appraise at 10 times the value of a coin of a similar weight and size because there's only a thousand of them in the world. That same day, um, depending on market forces, the guy might go, yeah, that's nice. It's pretty. I'll give you the price of silver for it. There's probably still somebody that would pay more than the price of silver because it's unique. It's a matter of finding that buyer. But I would not overinvest in them. And I sell them and I'm telling you that. You know, pick up a couple here and there. Buy what you like. Again, there's a certain value to having something as part of your collection and saying, I have that, and I, I and I I want that. And those that say there isn't, I'd say you probably have something like that in your life. I have all types of things that are on my wall, hanging up, certain books that I've paid extra for because they were out of print, just because I want them. And I think that with collectible numismatic, affinity, silver, gold, anything, that that's how you have to look at it. So, when it just you know a little bit going back, a little bit being selfish, going back to TSP Mint, when I come out with a proof edition, if you want it, buy it. You probably can sell it pretty quick and make a little profit on it, especially when we cut the run uh, on, on eBay, because people that wanted it that didn't get it. But I don't know how long that's going to last for you. I think that stuff wears off. Here's what I really advise against, though. People that are out buying, you know, uh, New Orleans Mint Mark MS67, uh, you know, silver piece dollar from 1868. I don't even know if that exists, right? And, and they're paying 350 bucks for it. Um, I think that's a mistake. I think that's a huge mistake. Um, because that numismatic value, if we ever go into economic class, will be completely wiped out. 
Well, how does that compare to a you know a proof affinity medallion or something like that you've paid 10, 20 bucks over spot for? Uh, it compares very poorly because the the proof may have lost 10% of its value. And frankly, what you're paying for a proof, think about this. What you're paying for a proof today, if you ever go into that scenario, the ounce of silver will probably be worth more than you paid for it anyway. <laughs> But the, the one that you've invested three, four hundred bucks in, that could have bought five, six, ten ounces of more affordable silver. So if you want, you know, the Carson City, uh, MS65, uh, silver dollar, and you just want it, that's fine. Just don't make it a major portion of the wealth value of your investment. Put it in a different category. Okay. So it's not your silver. Now it's your collectible category. You know, what portion of your wealth do you want to invest in collectibles? The same way you might look at a baseball card, right? Now, it's not as bad as a baseball card because in the end, a baseball card is a piece of cardboard and the, the mint marked, you know, silver dollar is a piece of silver and it's always going to have some historical value. And if we went through shit at the fan like that, We came out the other side of it. Its numismatic value might come back in spades because how many of them would have been broken out of cases and used for barter? You know, so there, there is some value there. Just don't overinvest in it. Um, let's talk about bigger pieces of silver bars, uh, rounds, five ounces and up, you know, five ounce bars, 10 ounce bars, 100 ounce bars, one kilo, things like that. Um, what I do like about them for people that are going to stack significant portions in silver, they stack better. In other words, a 100-ounce bar will take up less space in a, in a safe deposit box. In fact, I would tell you that 25-ounce bars will stack better in a safe deposit box than 100 rounds. It, it will. I don't really can't explain why, but it does. It just fits in there better. It's the same theory behind why I guess you can get, you know, Uh, more shot in a shot shell of the same size if you're using nine shot than sixes because there's less space in between the way they, but it seems to me like the rounds should go in there, but I'm telling you, you it, it just works out to where your larger, especially your flat, you know, rectangle shaped bars, they stack nicer in a, in a system for you. But they're a significantly large piece of silver. We look at something like a 10 ounce bar. Uh, a 10 ounce bar right now, Silver's at about $22, bucks, so $220. That's a significant piece of silver. It's still not huge, though. But if we go up into 100 ounces, now we're only at $2,200. And I would also tell you that the large bars are where you get into more potential to have a situation where you do have a counterfeit issue. It's much easier to take a 100-ounce kind of weird, ignorant-looking silver bar and core out five ounces of silver and then fill it with tungsten and get it very, very close back to being 100 ounces. And most of the counterfeit silver that's actually been found that actually was successfully passed off and made any duration in its existence as silver has been larger pieces. As you move down in the 5 to 10 ounce range, it's less of an issue. Again, you buy from a known producer Uh, Atmex, Monex, people like that. There's lots of Sunshine Mint. Uh, these are all places where if you're buying bars of silver, you're, you're pretty well assured you're, you're, uh, you're, you're buying ge the genuine article. For a large transaction, it's easier to move it around. Um, it tends to be a little less desirable, though, believe it or not. Um, ask most people, would you like one 10-ounce bar of silver or 10 silver rounds? They'll take the 10 silver rounds. It's much more divisible that way. 
right? In fact, one of the things people are clamoring for is affordable fractional silver. Yes, it's coming. We're working on it. Tenth ounces at the same price as buying it by the ounce. So people genuinely like to, to fractionalize down. It makes it easier to exchange. But th there are certain value for those that want to stack, you know, lots of silver to having some of it in bars. American Silver Eagles. Probably the most recognizable form of silver in the world today uh, will be accepted anywhere. Uh, very easy to spot a counterfeit. I mean, very, very easy to spot a counterfeit Silver Eagle. They're done so well, and the counterfeits are done so poorly um, that, you know, it's just really not an issue. They have certain tax advantages, certain advantages for those who want to hold silver in an IRA, though I don't really care because I told you not to put your silver in an IRA. Put your silver in, in a bank vault. Put your silver in a in a it's a floor safe. Put your silver in a, a safe a fire safe box that's that's hidden well away from any type of theft. Um, but don't put it in a place where it's publicly available for people to scrutinize it. It's anonymous wealth. Keep it that way. But you know if you want to do that, or if you have money that's already held hostage in an account like that, and you want that money in physical silver, there's you know that's probably your go to. Um, you will never have a day where you go try to sell that and people will go, I don't trust that. So it's extremely trusted. Um, but it sells at a premium. It sells at a definite premium over generics, even custom and medallions it sells at a premium over. Um, but they belong, it belongs in your portfolio. You should have some silver eagles. If you have a hundred ounces of silver, I'd tell you to try to balance it out with at least 10 eagles. Um, at least. Maybe 15. You know, it's, it, again, buy what you like, but there's a case for having this, a portfolio within the portfolio within the portfolio. So I have a wealth portfolio. I have a portfolio of metals within that. Within that portfolio is, is silver. Within that portfolio is multiple types of silver. In ounces, as far as fractional, full ounce, five ounce, ten ounce, and multiple types. And it makes sense to split that up. Because it diversifies risk. And that way, let's say we do get into a barter situation. Let's say there's no reason that somebody shouldn't take uh, some pre-64 quarters. It just doesn't make any sense. Everybody else is doing it. But this one guy that has what you want says, I only want eagles. Fine, I got eagles. How, well, let's make a deal here. right? I mean, it's having that flexibility that makes things a lot easier. International government-issued silver. I'm not talking about... You know, some, you know, private mint in, in Istanbul, Turkey, making coins that they tell you these are good coins. I'm talking about actual government minted coins. You know, Australian, uh, Canadian, Mexican Libertads, Canadian Maple Leafs. Um, there's maybe a little bit more of an assurance factor there. It just doesn't matter who's going to really care. Uh, again, silver counterfeiting is very easy to detect. I almost put international government-issued silver into the same category as, like, custom medallions. Pay about the same premium for them, fine. If, you, if it's a little bit more premium and you just want the 2013 Libertad in your collection or the 2013 Maple Leaf in your collection, fine. But don't go overboard with it. It's not going to be any more valuable than any other form of silver that we've talked about. Uh, U.S. pre-65 silver coinage. I, I want to talk about something here that's just like a technicality that, that people insist on nitpicking, and it just pisses me off. Um, the reason I call it pre-64 usually is because that's what everybody calls it. That's what everybody calls it. And there's a reason for it. Yes, they made silver coins in 64, but the Coinage Act, which ceased the minting of silver coins, was passed in 64. That's why some say pre-64. Pre-65 means everything 
that was made before 1965. Both terms are accurate. Don't worry about it. People know what the hell you're talking about. Okay, and I'll leave it there. But U.S. pre-65 silver coinage is 90% silver, dimes, quarters, 50 cents pieces, and dollars. Not all coins, because there was nickels, right? And there was a steel, a, a silver war nickel with a little bit of silver in it. I wouldn't really worry about that thing too much, though. But nickels and pennies were, of course, not made of silver. And uh, there actually is some coins that were made uh, 40% silver after Uh, pre-65s were, were done, specifically Kennedy half dollars. I think there were some 40% Ike dollars. Um, I don't really worry about those either. There, there, there's that whole, it's only 40%. How do you get the 40 from the 60, what have you? What's generally accepted is, you know, silver money is the pre-65 stuff. And that's what I recommend that you invest in. There's some real advantages there. One, you can get silver dimes for very low premium over spot comparatively, because remember, you're buying a numismatic coin to a varying degree anyway, that are you know either brilliant uncirculated or about uncirculated, very low usage dimes. Uh, a lot of times from sellers on eBay, how do I trust eBay? Read the seller reviews and stop overthinking this stuff. Nobody can afford to mint 1938 Franklin Roosevelt silver dimes. They, they, they can't. Well, the other reason they wouldn't do that is because it, Roosevelt dime wasn't made until 1946. So Mercury dimes from 1930, whatever. All right, but I'm just saying, you can't afford to do it. And one, the one big downside with the pre-64 coinage is that if it was circulated a lot, silver's a soft metal, and those coins tend to lose a significant amount of weight over time. And the more they're worn, the less silver that they contain, because the silver is on people's hands, it's... You know, dust on, on, on bills that circulated alongside of it. It's in cash register drawers. It's, it's gone. Okay. Um, and it, you know, silver coins in their day were not treated as anything special. A quarter was a quarter. It was meant to be spent. Right. So no one really took good care of them. But you can get, uh, dimes and quarters especially in, in fairly good condition, which means they're holding most of their silver at a very low premium over just buying generic bags of junk. And that means you have a coin that's recognizable, it's official U.S. currency, very difficult to counterfeit, almost never counterfeited unless it's like key date, special value, numismatic. That's what, that's what somebody would try to counterfeit for the collector value in it, not a silver quarter that's worth four bucks. It's just, it's cost prohibitive to do. All right. And if it was made from real silver, you wouldn't really care. So it's recognizable, small, denominations, easily exchanged, bought at a low premium, and will never be worth less than the face value. Even if the, even if the dollar implodes, it's still worth the face value. Just as the face value mean anything anymore. It might mean, it might mean a lot after a revaluation, honestly. So what quantities? Let me tell you how I'm sitting. I probably have, oh, I don't know, 10% generic bars and rounds of the one-ounce variety. Um, I probably have 15% of the custom medallions. I'll probably have a lot higher percentage of that because of my agreement with Rob to be paid in silver. So, uh, Collectible silver, numismatic stuff, um, 4% to 5% of my silver is in that. 5-ounce and up bars, larger bars, probably 15%. I'm just going off the top of my head. This might not end up to 100. American Silver Eagles probably make up 20% of my silver holdings. International government issued silver, five-ish percent. 
U.S. pre-64 coinage, probably 25%. Something like that. I don't know. I mean, it's it's a significant amount compared to the whole. Maybe 20% is more accurate um, because I was buying a lot of it for a time. What skewed my numbers is I take silver uh, for the MSB, right? So what do I take? I take an ounce of silver. And I take an ounce of silver or a dollar a dollar and fifty cents in uh, in pre sixty four coin, and that comes out to about an ounce of silver. So I have a lot of different stuff that's just what people like yourselves have chosen to pay in, and the the agnostic method by which I accept that payment should tell you how I really feel. Buy what you like, because I don't say, well, if you send me one of my own coins, which was self serving, because you'd have to buy it, then uh, I'll take one. But if you want Uh, to use uh, Eagle, I need two. I, I don't do that. Or, you know, I would need two plus a silver. I just, it's an ounce for a year of membership. And, you know, silver was trading a lot higher not long ago. And I charged an ounce for a year of membership. If you've been thinking about joining the MSB in silver, well, now would be the time to do it, wouldn't it? Take the savings, you know, 22 bucks versus 50 bucks. And go turn around and buy more silver than you spent with the savings. I'm just saying, you know. But yet, I haven't raised the price. I haven't said, you know what, now that silver's down, I'm up to an ounce and a half. Now, frankly, if silver goes down to 10 bucks, which I don't think it will, but, you know, anything's, or 12 bucks, two things will happen if silver goes to 12 bucks. I will raise the price to two ounces, and I'll buy the crap out of silver. But the fact that I, you don't see me tightly controlling the price ratio should also tell you how much I value silver. And how much I'm willing to give an incentive for people to spend it. And I'll still tell you, it's a very small percentage of people that pay, pay in silver. Which is kind of crazy, because it's the best deal in town on the MSB. Just just saying. Okay, so let's talk about methods of storing your, your silver. I think one of the best methods, if you're going to store a significant quantity in your home, is to spend the money, because you can put other things in there besides your silver, and get somebody to come out to your house, core a hole into the concrete slab, And put a safe down into that slab and put that somewhere very hard to find. And anybody with anything short of about six hours of time and a jackhammer ain't even getting a safe out of the floor, let alone into the safe. Those things are all but impossible to get into unless you are a professional safe cracker. And the odds that a professional safe cracker is going to target your house to get your thousand ounces of silver are not very high. That guy's probably better off breaking into a bank. Okay, uh, and he's probably caught either way because you still have a time consumption. Don't believe everything you see on TV. I think that's probably the safest way to make sure you can always put your hands on your silver. Um, I, I, I would say that the next, uh, the next best thing, as long as you can find a good place to hide it, is any sort of a fireproof safe. If you have a gun safe, if it's not fire rated, then it's you know I I would worry about my guns honestly. Um, And not every gun needs to be in a fireproof safe. But if you if you bought a safe because that's what you're wanting, you know, make sure you have a fire rated safe that your your, your weapons are in. Um, but silver, I would want in a fire rated uh, box. In an in floor safe, I'm not worried about it because it's just you could burn the house down, and that that temperature down in the ground is just not going to get up to a point where it's going to really do any damage. Um, but any type of a fire box, good quality locking box, and that needs to be hidden very very well. And you can do what we do, which is we employ the decoy firebox. We have a firebox, costs us about 60 bucks, nice big one, full of bricks. That's what's in it, bricks. It's very heavy. It's very, very heavy. I'm thinking about one day opening it up and throwing the bricks out into the, the woods somewhere and filling it with something like, oh, I don't know, lead shot. You know, a couple bags of lead shot. <laughs> a couple, <yeah. laughs> 
or uh, just some junk metal, uh, things like that. In fact, lead might be not just a bad thing to have for casting because we're making bullets and stuff. Just keep all my casting lead in there. Here's why. If, if you were to break into my house and you were to try to find something that looked like you wanted to steal, you'd find that box fairly easily. You would not have time to get into that box, and when you felt how heavy it was, you'd think you hit the mother load. So you might take that box and haul ass with it. And if you ever get it open, I'm out some lead or some bricks, and you get nothing, and uh, hopefully you'll get arrested for stealing nothing. That would be great. Um, but that's that's just one decoy. And then that way, things that are hidden a little bit better are less likely to be found. And it makes sense sometimes to do things, ladies, even like you get yourself your decoy jewelry box. You make that really obvious where that is. You put all your cheap costume jewelry in there. And, uh, you know, you set that somewhere where it could be found. That's going to be grabbed quickly, and you take your good, high-quality jewelry that maybe you don't want in a safe because you don't want to have to go get it because you wear your jewelry often, and you put that into a little bit better of a hidden place. You can do this with lots of things, not just silver. But that's number two. Number three, I would say, is private storage. If you can find a good, secure private storage facility that doesn't keep government connections, it's not a bank, it's just a secure basically a private safe deposit box. Um, and there's all types of companies that you could use for things like this. There's places where people keep wine collections and stuff, and usually they don't ask what you're putting in there, and that's better because it's it's better because it's just as secure to me as a bank safe deposit box, which is my next thing, but it's not a financial relationship defined by our government. It's just private storage. You still have your name on it, but it's still just private storage. It doesn't have the same scrutiny. Next in the list would be a bank safe deposit box. The advantage of a safe deposit box is it's extremely secure. You don't hear about a lot of people having a safe deposit box broken into unless government does it. Um, on that note, I think that the fear should be mitigated with reality. You don't hear a lot of that either. Generally, when somebody has the FBI or the IRS or somebody else go in and have their deposit box drilled open, they're usually doing something they're not supposed to be doing. There's not a whole lot of victimless uh, attacks of this yet. And I would think if we began to move toward a way with currency failures and stuff like that, by the time we're getting into that, then the preppers probably already retrieved their silver. So it's a great way to have a low cost because we had a box... Gee, it's just the smallest box they make, but they're really, really deep. They could easily hold quite a quite a bit of silver and some cash and some other things for 12 bucks a year, I think we were paying a local bank for. Um, the only downside it is defined is, this, is a financial relationship, and it's subject to the same scrutiny by our government today as a bank account, except there's no number on it. You just you have a box. That's all they know. And if you were to empty the box today and they were to go in there tomorrow, what was in the box? I just had the box in case I needed it. All right. So I mean, there's a lot of a lot of over concern about a safe deposit box. I think that if you have a significant amount of silver, some of it should probably be in a small local bank, a locally owned small bank, in a safe deposit box. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think it's a contingency. It's even if everything else goes to shit, you still have that. Um, silver banking. So like this is like silver saver. What AOCS has up with the Free Lakota, uh, Free Lakota Bank, uh, and other things like that. I don't like silver banking yet. Has nothing to do with the bullshit that Chris brought up about, about Rob. I just don't like silver banking yet because the fees required for you to store my silver make my silver, if everything stays level, a declining asset. And I think that for silver banking to work, 
It needs to be at a point where it's so easy to use the silver as money that I can go to a restaurant, whip out a debit card attached to that account, and pay in silver. When silver banking gets there, then I will advocate having some of your banking in silver. I think that'll make sense. But silver's volatile as well. The value of silver to me is so beyond, you know, just, well, it hedges against inflation. It's that it's private, anonymous wealth that I can exchange, and it's nobody's business but myself and the person I'm exchanging it with. I'm not saying it's done a lot. I'm saying it's an option that we may need someday. If it's in a bank account, it doesn't work that way anymore. So I think silver banking has a way to go. I love what Rob is doing. I think he has some really big take-on-the-world plans with it. I'm hoping that it'll get there. I have nothing against anybody that would bank in silver the way that it's available today. Again, the two places I know that an American can do this are silversaver.com and freelakotabank.com. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It's just not where I'm putting my money. It's, it's nothing about the trustworthiness of either of those services. It's about the mechanics behind it. What advantage does it give me to put my money into a banking system like this? They don't pay me interest, right? They charge me to hold my money. I can only exchange it general, generally with other people using the same service. The network's not that big yet that that makes it easy to do. It takes the money out of my hands and puts it into somebody else's hands, and it opens it up to at least some potential scrutiny. I, it, it, there's nothing wrong there. I just don't get enough advantage for the inconvenience and the expense. So when silver banking comes along, and our government definitely doesn't want it to, but if it does come along the right way, I'm all about it. Paper silver. What is the purpose of paper silver? These are silver funds like SLV, SIVR, and things like that. Um, if you want silver in your IRA, buy paper silver. If you want to short silver, use paper silver to short it. If you want to do anything with silver that's highly visible and short-term, do it with paper. Um, yes, it's subject to manipulation, but the paper manipulation is manipulating the physical commodity right now, this second. So it's not like one's manipulated and another's not. Now, could there eventually be a decoupling where you start to see the paper market really fall and silver hold its own in physical? We've already seen a little bit of that. You've already seen a little bit of that. Right now, physical silver is generally selling at a better premium overspot than it was three weeks ago. But there could be a complete decoupling where you start to see the paper market go to almost nothing and the physical market start taking back off again. That could happen. You know? All bets are off then. The truth is out then is what that means. But short-term commodity training, that's the place for paper silver. Long-term investing, no dice. Not where I want my money. Again, I've taken anonymous wealth that I can put into a safe in the floor of my house, and I've turned it into something with every government agency's eyeballs on it. There's no advantage there to me other than immediately exchangeable and convertible to dollars through a brokerage account. So that's what it should be used for. Uh, the next one, buried in the ground. Chris Dwayne advised this. You know, put it in a really secure box and bury it somewhere in your backyard. Don't do this. Don't do this. You may need it and not be able to get to it or find it. You may end up dead, and it, you, the only other person you told might end up dead, and it lays there. If you bury it somewhere, especially off your property, and somebody finds it, they have legitimate claim to it. I mean, it's just, it's stupid, it's dumb. If you've got it buried in the ground somewhere right now, go dig it up and choose one of the other options. And then there's what I call the multi-cash method. 
In other words, having multiple caches. So having some in a floor safe, maybe a small amount that's available, a little bit easier without going into your safe for it, for exchange, or if you're doing exchange in silver and silver's coming in, it's just basically in a good solid firebox somewhere, kind of tucked away, but easy to get to. Some of it may be in a deposit box or private storage. Um, maybe the, if you're doing some investing, you're using a little bit of paper. Uh, if you could get some private storage and a bank safe deposit box and split it between two locations or two bank safe deposit boxes, if you can't find private storage, the more you have, the more you should divide it up. Okay? If you have 10 ounces of silver and you're worried about what to do with it, don't. You don't have enough to worry about. You re I know you feel like, well, this is all I have, but it, you, you don't. Hide it somewhere really good. Maybe get yourself one of the small fireboxes. Everybody should have that with like data sticks with all your important stuff in there. Um, so maybe some special heirlooms and pictures and paperwork and your, your 10, 20 ounces of silver. Throw it in there. You can't sit around and worry about freaking, just to be blunt, $200. You can't. Because you're wasting your time with so many other important things you could be worried about. I would never go, if all I had was 10 ounces of silver, I would never go to a bank and get a safe deposit box if all I was going to put in there was my silver. If I was going to put some other things in there, like backups for my passports and stuff like that, and some cash and maybe some records or something like that, I might do it. But if it was just, all I had was 10 ounces of silver, that's all I was worried about. I would never pay a bank 12 bucks a year to put my silver in a, in, a, in a safe deposit box. I just wouldn't. So those are my methods of, of saving and my thoughts on each of them. I also want to talk now about knowing what the hell you have, inventory and auditing. My big thing here is I'll have people say to me, you know, I'm worried about storing my silver. I'll say, well, how much do you have of what type? And they go, well, I think I have about uh, 700-ish ounces. Uh, eh, wrong answer. Okay, your house is destroyed in a flood. Even though Jack told you your safe would make it okay, it was a massive flood and your foundation washed away. You can't even find your foundation. You'd now like your insurance company to cover your precious metals that you had in your policy. Prove how much you had. Tell State Farm I had 700-ish ounces. And yes, you can insure things like metal on your insurance if you talk to your insurance provider. Um, that would be just one example of why you should know what you have. Okay, so know what you have. Don't think you know, no. The next thing is stop thinking in dollars. Stop thinking in dollars because it will make you very happy about things that don't matter and very sad about things that don't matter. Here's what I mean. Let's say you had a thousand ounces of silver. And let's say that just a little bit ago that silver was trading at what? I don't know, recently as high as 33 bucks within the past six months. So you had a thousand ounces of silver at 33 bucks. You had $33,000 in silver. Now, let's say that you didn't buy any silver between then and now, and silver's now at 22 bucks. Now, you have 22 ounces of silver. You've lost $10,000, if you think, in dollars. Well, here's the reality. You didn't sell it at 33 bucks, which means you weren't going to sell it at 33 bucks, which means you had no intention of selling it at 33 bucks. So what you had was 1,000 ounces of silver, ensuring and preserving your wealth for the future. And today, if silver was still 33 bucks, you probably wouldn't be selling it today. So what you still have is a thousand ounces of silver insuring and protecting your wealth for the future. That's the type of silver investing that I'm talking about today. Silver, I see, is a long-term hedge against inflation, a long-term insurance policy for your wealth, a long-term assurance, probably better than insurance, assurance, to assure that no matter what happens to the currency, there's a certain underlying value that you're holding that you know will tend to have value. And it's a good barter implement. It's a great way to make fair exchanges between men independent of Federal Reserve notes. 
Those are the two things that it's for, and generally those transactions are in ounces. Now, yes, if you want to buy a car, and the guy wants five grand for the car, and you say, will you take silver, he's probably going to want to take the spot price and divide by the ounces, and by the way, you'll probably do better. Because you'll never get the spot price from a dealer. You see what I'm saying? So as long as he wants to keep some of that silver in silver, you know, you'll probably do better anyway, even in that situation. But... You know, most silver barter is, you know, a couple ounces for a guy to do some work for you. Normally would have paid him cash, and a lot of times he'll do it for less. So those are the ways to think about silver in ounces. But do inventory types, not just ounces. Don't say, well, I have 700 ounces. I know it's 700 ounces. Well, you know, and, you know I'm sure some of you are like, well, you said it was 15% this, 20% that. What we have is we do have an inventory sheet that just basically breaks it down to silver eagles, generic rounds bars and just what form the silver's in and that's really what I'm talking about I'm not talking about an inventory that's like three 2013 silver eagles 10 2007 silver eagles about uncirculated or brilliant uncirculated I'm not talking about that I'm just talking about eagles maple leafs libertads generic bars generic rounds pre-64 coin and even on the pre-64 coin, all you need is a, is a total dollar value. I, I wouldn't even take it down to quarters, 50 cent pieces, dollars, half dollars. I just say, you know, we ha I have $120 worth of pre-64 coin. I have uh, 25 ounces of American Silver Eagles. I have 10 ounces of uh, Mexican Libertats. That's how it, but keep that a basic, simple inventory. And it's real easy then when you add to it to update that inventory sheet. And then every once in a while, you should sit down and audit that inventory. You know, I know our government doesn't do it with the gold in Fort Knox, but you should do it with your silver so that you don't think you know, you do know. And as you're breaking silver up into multiple caches, it becomes more important. What you put in the safe deposit box, as long as you inventory it when it goes in there, you're probably not going to be taking a trip there every week to add more to it. So it's going to sit there, and it's going to be pretty static. But if you are doing some bartering exchanging in silver and you're you know, buying an MSB for three years right now for three ounces of silver, that's three years for $66. Just, just put it out there, okay? Um, you might want to make a note that that went away and what, what portion it came from. You know, and if you if you go out and do some plumbing work for somebody tomorrow for for, for three ounces, and you 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 go back to par, you might want to make a note of that, especially any part of fluid component of this. And you know, you can do it with initials and stuff, so it doesn't really mean anything to anybody but you, which is probably not a bad idea. You know, like you know, ten AE. What's ten AE? I don't remember what that was. Okay, because you know, you're creating your own paper trail, and you're talking about an anonymous wealth. And I'm not talking about being nefarious here. I'm not talking about doing anything below board. I'm just saying, isn't it a good idea to at least have some part of your life that's nobody's business but your own? Is there anything wrong with wanting some parts of your life to stay private? And, and silver gives you that opportunity. Um, do photograph items and type stacks for insurance if you insure your silver. If you don't insure it, I wouldn't even do that. If you don't have insurance on it, if your insurance company won't pay for it, if you can't get the type of insurance with your homeowner's policy that would pay for the, the, the silver in your home, then don't bother with photographing it. But if you do have that, and people say, well, what about if somebody gets... <laughs> Put the photographs in another secure location, okay? Um, it, it make it just as secure as the silver itself, and that would mean that you have just as much risk of the silver itself being discovered as the photographs. I'm, you know, don't... 
don't try to pretend that everybody needs to be super secret squirrel with everything. Just use basic common sense OPSEC security here. But I do think it makes sense to have photographs. You know, put them on a data stick and encrypt the damn thing. You know, and then put that into a secure location where you have other data kept securely. All right. And do update your inventory often. I think that's really more important. Photographs, I, you could take and leave that. That all comes down to do you have insurance on it? If you have insurance on it, that's a good way to make sure you can prove that you had possession of it. Um, and many people will find that it's, it's cost prohibitive, that it's not worth adding insurance on your metal. Many will find in some places the insurance company won't do it. Many will find there's a cap. A lot of places will say, well, we'll insure silver and gold and jewelry, all is the same type of thing, and we'll do it up to five grand. Well, then you probably only want to keep that much of it in your home without taking extraordinary measures like in-floor safes, fire-rated in-floor safes, safe deposit boxes, and things like that. So just take the, uh, the uh, advice to photograph with a grain of salt. It's based on what you actually can insure for. So if you can insure for five grand... Photograph five grand worth of it and maybe go up to like 7,500 bucks to uh, compensate for fluctuations because silver goes up and down and it depends on where it's at when something goes wrong. You want to make sure you can replace what you've lost. All right. And do update your inventory often. Know what you have. Know what you have. Don't be like, well, you know, I did some work yesterday for some guy and he paid me in silver and I put that in a drawer. And, you know, I don't overstress a couple ounces here and there. I have two ounces sitting on my desk right now. They're not part of my official inventory. They're here because, well, I used them for video props. So that's what they're for. And then eventually they'll get into the, the, the regular inventory. But uh, if you do that with regularity, you can end up with a drawer full of, you know, 15, 20 ounces of silver. That's a lot of money sitting in a drawer. So, and I know some people are like shocked that that could even happen to some people. And some people are going, well, that could happen to me. And here's why. Some people. Everything that they do with silver is just buying it, investing it, and holding it. And to those people, it's precious. When you start to barter in it, things change a little bit. You, need to, it, you start looking at it more like what it is, money. It's money. And there's probably plenty of people that have you know, a, you know, three or four $20 bills stuck in a jar somewhere as an emergency stash. So that does happen with silver. What I'm saying is don't let it go overboard. Um, some final thoughts. First thing, as I hear from people that say, I don't know if I can afford to buy silver right now, but I'm really thinking I need to. So what, if you don't think you can afford silver right now, you can't. I'm looking at a very nice, beautiful TSP silver coin right now. I, I'm very happy that it exists and I have it. I'm very happy that over 8,000 ounces of it have been sold. I would love for you to buy more, but you can't eat it, okay? You can't eat it. It won't grow a, a, a tree for you. It won't do anything except be a hedge against your wealth, which means if you can't afford to buy an ounce of silver, you probably don't have enough wealth to insure with an ounce of silver. You're probably in a state yet right now where you're not financially balanced. So buy silver slowly in small quantities over time if that's you and get yourself squared away at least with a thousand bucks in cash. Get your debt paid down at least until it's manageable and controllable and you can see the end. Don't go buying silver with your paycheck if, you know, at the end of the week you only have 10% of that paycheck left. That percent, 10% right now should go to cash. So the guy that sells you silver is saying there's certain conditions that you would be in. Don't buy it yet. There's going to be time. Now, if it drops down to 7 bucks or 8 bucks or something stupid like that, and I'm dancing naked on my roof, which 
I'm getting pretty close to doing that right now with the, with the price drop. It just needs to go a little lower, and it might happen, I'm telling you. But if it goes down to something stupid, then you might take a portion of cash and opportunity buy. Because, I mean, how many of you would love to rewind the clock to back in the 90s when silver was four or five bucks an ounce and, and just go in and buy, you know, $10,000 worth of it back then? I'm sure many of you would. And if we ever get the opportunity again, partake in it. But right now, with silver over 20 bucks an ounce, if you don't think you can afford it, you probably can't. Okay? If you're iffy, you probably can't. If you're iffy, not really that bad, but not sure, then, you know, you might start going to find a local coin shop and go buy, you know, five dimes a week or something like that until you build up a little bit. You know, even, even if you do that, right? If you bought five dimes a week, For 50 weeks, you have 250 dimes at the end of the year. So there's ways to do this, and that's why it's the common man's currency. Um, but don't go, especially dropping, you know, 500 bucks on silver if you're really worried about how you're going to pay your rent next month. Don't do it. Next up, take a balanced approach. And I don't just mean what I talked about, buy some rounds, buy some custom, buy some generics, buy some eagles. Take a balanced approach in your life. So... When I say 10% of your wealth, understand that I do include things like your home if you own your home or if you have equity in your home. If you have a $200,000 house that's legitimately a $200,000, if you put it on the market within 60 days, it's going to sell for $200K. You know that. You can look at comps. You, you know it. Okay, And you owe 100 on it. Your house has a wealth factor in your life of 100 grand. Okay. That's about $10,000 worth of metal that I think belong in your life in addition to what you're holding in cash and other assets. Maybe five, if you want to go the 5% route, which I think is a better approach for a lot of people because there's so many things we need to be doing in our lives to be balanced. 5%, in actually actuality, the more wealthy you become, the more and more 5% makes sense in some ways because you have so many other things you can now do with that additional wealth as far as putting in permanent systems that provide for you in, in many different ways. But don't go all in. That's the dumbest piece of advice I've ever heard anybody go, give. The person that went all in just watched 30% of their net worth go gone. The person that has a 5% or 10% holding Watch that 5% or 10% decline by about a third. And it, it, it probably is the case that it was gained in some other area because they are holding an equity or something like that that's doing very well right now. Or they've had appreciated value in their home. Even the person that was underwater and still is has still had the value of the underlying home come up in the last two years, as the housing market has some level of recovery. When things get bad, metals do better. When things get better, metals tend to back off a little bit. I'm going to finish up with what is uh, going on with silver pricing here in just a second. The next thing, though, and I've talked about this a, a, a bit, um, selling silver is never as smart as trading it, with a caveat, unless you're really going to make a lot of money and you need the cash. But when it comes to small amounts of silver, if you can barter with it, it makes a hell of a lot more sense. It makes a hell of a lot more sense because generally you can barter with it with a lot more consistency and regularity. If you come up with somebody that does work for you around your home, a handyman type guy, and you come up with a, great, a rate of an ounce an hour, and silver drops two bucks, you think he's going to be like, now I need two or 1.3 ounces or something like that. No. Right? So it holds this consistency and value in barter, and it's private. 
It's, it's not a financial transaction. It's an exchange of value for value. Um, I also want to say something else. It's probably not going to make you rich. Holding 10% or even 100% of your money in silver is probably not going to make you rich. The people that promise that are full of freaking shit. There's people that think, well, I'll just stack a couple thousand ounces of silver, and when the economy implodes, I'm going to go buy Ohio. You're an idiot. It ain't going to happen. What it will do is preserve your wealth and give you an assurance on your future that you're going to ensure a certain value of what you have. And it's much more important that you know you can feed yourself, clothe yourself, and defend yourself than to have silver. Silver's an, an arrow in the quiver. It's not the quiver itself. And, and, and when you're told anything different, run away. Just run away fast. Um, because it's, it, it's not likely to do it. Now, could it? Could, could you hit the lottery by holding 10,000 ounces of silver? Yeah, sure you could. But at a point where, the, let's say silver's trading for $5,000 an ounce and gold's trading for fifteen, the, 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 the currency is so dead at that point that you'd still be better off exchanging the silver for what you wanted than converting it to a currency that at that point is burning so fast, even if you went and sold your silver and walked across the street, the price of what you're buying may have gone up in the time it took you to do that. So... It, it's not a get-rich thing. It's a wealth preservation thing. And it's very important for that reason. And don't worry about confiscation. Really don't do it. I mean, me picking on Chris and all, he did do some good work, and I, I wish he'd pull his head out of his ass. And, you know, his comments on confiscation, what do you think you're going to do, send a SWAT team into the window of an old lady's house to get some pre-64 dimes? That's a dead-on comment. It, it doesn't make any sense. Um, gold was never confiscated. That's one of the biggest myths there right there. Gold was purchased. The U.S. government purchased it with currency, and nobody was ever prosecuted for not turning their gold in. And I guarantee you there were people that exchanged gold coins between 1933 and, and 1975 and did so often. I know what happened because I know people that did it. Um, I know that, that my, uh, my grandparents on my father's side didn't turn in a single gold coin. And my grandmother had a fairly significant stash of gold coins. And she was a woman that almost never swore, went to church every Sunday, that type of thing. But once in a while, when she brought that jar out to show it to me, she'd say, these are the ones the sons of bitches didn't get. right? And nobody kicked her door in. And if you're in a world where people are being prosecuted because they have silver dimes, you have bigger problems than the silver dimes. So don't even worry about that. It's like worrying about EMP. Once you travel down the road of EMP concern, forever will it consume you. And nothing you shall do shall change reality. It, it, it's worth more worrying about developing the means to survive when systems of support fail, whether they be economic or logistical, doesn't matter, and building that resiliency into your life. I do want to finish up with the reality of what's going on with the pricing in the market today. Um, there are people out there, and generally these are the same people that told you, go all in, 100% silver, 100% gold, protect your money now, go do it, it's about to burn up, that are saying this is entirely manipulated, completely, totally manipulated, that that what's going on is 100% because of paper speculation, where they're taking and selling silver that nobody's taking delivery of, and they're running these these short sales, and they're speculating the market down, and they're doing it intentionally and maliciously. It's true, but what, what 
what destroys that analysis and the honesty behind it, or at least the accuracy, some of the people saying that really believe it, some of the people know they're full of shit, um, is that it's not 100%. The 100% is what kills it off. It's a lot like, well, first thing you have to understand is that you can speculate a market down just like you can speculate it up. So remember when oil went to like $150 a barrel? And the price of gas was, like, even compared to now, through the roof. And people were saying, it's the evil speculators doing it. Well, they were doing it, but they weren't responsible for all of the increase. What happened is the oil actually began to go up just due to plain old market forces. And the speculators understanding the market forces influenced them to a greater degree and pushed it higher And then they bailed at the top, took their profits, and let it fall, flop back down, stabilize. Then it crashed to the floor. Well, they speculated it back down, and then it equalized back out and went into a relatively level position after that. This is exactly what's going on with silver and gold right now, and there's a reason. There's a legitimate market force behind this. Let's say you're a big investor, and you bought a crap ton of silver, and you bought a crap ton of gold, physical or paper. I don't care. And you bought that metal back in 2008 because you were not stupid and you did not listen to the mainstream morons and you invested that money before the market fell on its ass and fell apart. And you decided even with the market recovery that it was a better play and you've held silver and gold since, let's say, June, May, June of 2008. Then you watch silver rocket up almost to 50 bucks. Maybe you dumped some, maybe you took some profits, but you basically held because you knew you didn't want to leave the market yet. And then you watch silver go into kind of a sideways move between 30 and 40 bucks and kind of stick there for a while. All the while, you're looking at the opportunities to do something else with your money. And you see all the things that are indicating a long-term boom cycle in the U.S. economy again, even if it's fake. I don't care if it's fake. Right, But you know there's duration behind it. You know about national gas exports, which, by the way, next uh, show that I do with listener feedback, I'm going to tell you about more on national gas, natural gas exports, ports that are being built now specifically so they can send the gas freighters to the Panama Canal that the Chinese and international community are building so we can ship the gas to China, and we're going to be shipping it across the Atlantic as well. Um, you see that. You see... The Fed continuously pouring liquidity into the market. You see all of these things that, that spell boom for the market. At some point, you go, you know what? I've made my money here. Because a lot of these people holding silver and gold are not holding a 1,000 ounces. They're holding 10,000, 20,000 ounces or more. They're holding a million dollars worth of gold. And they, and they say, you know what? That you know, $300,000 investment is now a million dollars in my, my portfolio. Let's, let's go ahead and divest ourselves of some of that. While the market's high, let's take that money and put it somewhere else. So what you've seen is a flood of, of large investors dumping their silver and gold holdings to go into an equities market because they know that's the next place. They were smart. Think about this. They were smart enough to position themselves in the metal market before most of most of most of the you guys in this audience did, right? They didn't chase it. They put and they waited. And some of them exited at the top, but a lot of them, what they did with that big spike, they they went and they short-sold against their whole holdings. They held it right through the spike and the drop. They still made money off of it by selling the put option on the other side. They never got called out on their option. Or if they did, they took the money from it, went back and bought more after it dropped. And they held through this this uncertainty cycle. They waited for the government to get off its ass and you know get past the fiscal cliff and everything like that. 
And then they waited for Ben to really show, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pump the market. And they waited for all of this stuff to shake out with energy to see if Obama was really the anti-energy president that he was making himself out to be, or if he was just an anti-coal president. Which is makes you, if you're anti-coal, it makes you actually very pro-oil and pro-gas, pro-solar and pro-wind. By just by squashing one sector, you let the other sectors come in and, and make a gain off of what's lost in that sector. And once all that hashed out, they said, okay, let's take that money and run. So they put that money, they started to pull their money out. And you can see silver begin to dwindle from the, that period of time. Okay, right in from the end of 2012, holding, holding, holding. And then as you get closer to 2013, if you look at a chart, you'll see it start to fall into the January. You'll see it level a little bit when people were screaming and crying that the world was going to end over the fiscal cliff. And as soon as we got past that crisis and all these stars aligned, poof, down. And it, it sat now down there for a little bit. And it could come more as people sell to free the investment up to put into other things. In come the speculators. And the speculators are smart enough that they see all this. And they say, you know what? If we sell a lot of phantom silver, we'll drive it even lower. So we'll take short positions and sell silver, naked short sell, Silver we don't even have, and we'll make a bunch off of that as we speculate it further down. So it's real market forces and speculative manipulative forces combining to push silver down. And it may not be done yet. I, does, do, does that mean don't buy any silver right now? No, because I don't know if this is a bottom or not. Greg Manorino, who I really respect, says we pretty close if not at a bottom. This is about as much as they can do to push it down. I, I don't know. It, it could be. That's why it does make sense. It's pretty cheap right now to buy some. But if it, but you don't buy it with, you know, money that's for tomorrow because it might go down further and you might need that tomorrow money. Buy it with long-term money like I always say to do. And, and, and this is a place for dollar cost averaging. And if it goes way down, buy more. I mean, that's, that's the way to make this play is a long-term, smart, strategic approach. And don't believe people with extremes on any side of the market. You know, people say, it'll never go below 22 bucks. Well, maybe. You know, the same, that's the same person that said it would never go below 26 bucks. And they came up with some excuse as to why it did. Where what I've been trying to tell you from the beginning is it's a volatile commodity. Silver's not money. Gold's not money. They are used as money. Money's not money. Money's used as money. There's no, there's no such thing, honestly, as true money. Money is whatever society decides to use as a means of exchange at any given point in time. And it's subject to the confidence of society to change on a dime. Right? I shouldn't say on a dime, right? Because that, <laughs> that's money. But you get my point. The reality is, as confidence shifts in any sector, the value of that sector is, is, is a fluctuating value relative to other sectors. Even cash, same thing. So take a balanced approach. Don't believe people that scare you, hype you, or tell you to do 100% of anything. I don't care if people say go to 100% cash, go to 100% gold, go to 100% stocks. I don't trust anybody that says that because they're not thinking strategically. That is literally putting all your eggs in one basket. That's what you're doing there. So hopefully this has cleared up a lot of confusion and concern about the silver investing market as a whole. Hopefully it's given you a new outlook 
so that you understand that there's a certain intrinsic value that's part of every piece of silver. That that's you know something you can just rest your, your laurel on, so to speak, and say that that's the underlying value of this investment. And any premium you're paying is based on a level of affinity or collector value or tax advantage or recognizability in the marketplace. Or any premium you're saving gives those things up. So, do I buy Eagles or Free 64 Silver? Buy what you like, buy a little of everything. That's, that's the most basic advance. How do I know that I'm getting good silver? You know, get your hands on some good silver and look at it. Go to a, go to a pawn shop. And ask them to explain what they look at. Take some of your silver down there. Take take a silver bar. Take a silver eagle. Take a generic round. Say, hey, look, you know what? If you'll give me a, a ten minute little class on what you would look for if I was, I don't even want to sell it. I'm not even looking to sell it. But I'll give you five bucks if you'll just explain to me what you would look for. And by the way, if you have anything here that is counterfeit, you can show me what it looks like that uses a training aid. Show me that. I'll give you five bucks for a little class. Let them give you a class. Most guys would be happy to do that. Go when they're not busy. Go in the middle of the week, in the middle of the day or something like that. Don't go in there when there's 10 guys trying to sell or buy something and ask a guy to do that for you. But go you know, go at a low point and look around and maybe buy something else from while you're there for his time. And you will instantly realize how overblown that concern really is. You really will. Um, yeah, the Chinese this, the Chinese that. The Chinese did everything. They're building a freaking bomb under your house right now. They're building a, a giant sinkhole to, it makes me think of, you know, everything bad China did it. There was a, a like World News Daily or something like that. I don't know what you call it. It's a, one of those like just ridiculous, I don't even know if they print it anymore, but it's like one of those ridiculous newspapers like Star or some, but like to the ultimate ridiculousness, like the one Batboy was always in. And there was a story that one billion Chinese on a certain day were going to jump up and down to knock the earth off its axis and swing the climate uh, because it would do good for them and bad for America. And it was imperative that every American go out and jump up and down at a certain time to try to counterbalance this. And we should tell our friends in Canada and Mexico as well because there weren't enough of us. But if we did it, some physicists said that even though we're outnumbered, that you know they're barely capable of doing it. So if we did it back, it would. That's how ridiculous. Some of everything's bad China did is to me. China is a global rising economic power that's going through some of their own economic woes right now, but they're not going away. But they're not responsible for everything bad in the world. They're just people like us in many ways. They don't like their form of government, but in the end, most people that I've met from China are pretty decent folks. And, and that's something we need to understand as a whole and not live our lives in fear, live our lives in power. If you're worried about what counterfeit silver looks like, learn how to recognize real silver. And uh, understand that the, one of the main reasons it was used as a monetary metal is it's so easy to verify. There are literally tens of thousands of pawn shops all over America today with people behind the counter that make twice minimum wage or less that are able to determine counterfeit silver. You can do it too if it's that big of a concern. With that, this has been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way.